morning. If you would, open your Bibles, please, to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. I'm going to read from verse 1 through verse 10 of Ephesians 2. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past, in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love, wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace are ye saved. <clears throat> and hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. <clears throat> I'd like to uh, share with you this evening how God in his rich and amazing grace saved me. I was the first child born into a uh, Roman Catholic family. And I describe my family that way because um, that religion was very formative in my early life. Um, and as I look back now, I would say that um, it would be fair to say that my parents were devout Roman Catholics, and to this day still are. When I was five weeks old, I was baptized. And it should be understood that that ritual, that rite in the religion that I was brought up in uh, is extremely important. Even people who are not, uh, wouldn't consider themselves religious Roman Catholics, Catholics who really are just Catholic by name only, will have children that they may have baptized. <clears throat> the religion actually teaches what is known as baptismal regeneration. That is that baptism is the very means by which um, an individual is born again or born into the family of God. Um, official Roman Catholic teaching says this about baptism. I'm just going to read a quote from an official source. It says, holy baptism is the basis of the whole Christian life, the gateway to life in the spirit. Through baptism, we are freed from sin and reborn as sons of God. We become members of Christ, are incorporated into the church, and made sharers in her mission. Now, needless to say, I don't remember um, that event. I don't remember when I was baptized. But for my parents, for the priest who baptized me, and for the onlookers there, that day I became a Christian. That was um, what would have been... Uh, believed there. And so as I was carried out of that church, I was now um, a Christian. And growing up as a child, that's what I, I believed. 
And by the way, the priest who baptized me was my father's uncle, my great uncle, who then went on to become a bishop uh, and then an archbishop in the Roman Catholic Church. Now, I was raised by parents who uh, I think by worldly standards would, would be considered um, you know, morally righteous in, in individuals. <clears throat> and as from far back as I could remember, I attended the Roman Catholic um, religious service, which is called the Mass, and I might uh, talk about that a little bit later. Um, and Mass was something that we were to go to every Sunday and every um, holy day of obligation was the, the term for other uh, important uh, days in the Roman Catholic calendar. And I remember growing up, um, religious books around the house, many of them had vivid illustrations. Um, and I learned about Jesus, but I also learned about Mary. And I learned about um, so-called saints that one could pray to and was encouraged to pray to them. <clears throat> and in the Roman Catholic religion, Mary is very highly venerated. Um, in fact, many believe that it's through Mary that one gets to Jesus. And while official Catholic teaching would say that Mary is not worshipped, in, in practical terms, um, Mary is worshipped by, by many Roman Catholics. Um, and so I, I learned these things, and there was a big emphasis on Mary, and I remember there were titles of Mary given to, to her by the religion, titles such as Mother of God, uh, Co-Mediator, Co-Redemptrix. Um, and I was taught to pray the rosary, which were beads that uh, one would handle and just sort of move through the beads uh, each time reciting a prayer called the Hail Mary, which was a prayer to Mary. And in fact, I even remember going um, occasionally to, uh, believe it or not, a shrine to Mary. Um, not somewhere in Europe, um, in some you know, old medieval town, but right here in New Jersey, right here in uh, Washington Township in Warren County, New Jersey, there was and there still is a, a shrine that one can go to um, that is dedicated to Mary. Now, we had a Bible in the house, but um, as, as with the case of um, many of my relatives, it was really more of a decorative uh, piece than something that, um, that we were to go to for ultimate truth. Um, the ultimate authority, I was taught from a young age, was the, the Roman Catholic Church. Um, and I was taught that that church was founded by Jesus Christ. And so it was the church that was responsible for correctly interpreting the Bible, uh, something called the magisterium of the church, which is the teaching authority of the religion. And so really, ultimately, to get to God, one had to go through this institution, through this church. That was the way to God. And more specifically, it was through the sacraments that were um, such an important part of the religion that was the root to God. And I was taught that while Jesus somehow obtained grace through his death on the cross, that grace had to come 
again, through these channels of grace that are known as sacraments. And so the religion was a very um, sort of hands-on, works-oriented um, religion. And so grace really, if you look at that meaning of grace and compare it to the, the definition of grace that we see in the Word of God, which we'll, we'll get into and which I, um, I, I read of here in Ephesians chapter 2, um, there, there's a problem with that. Um, they're contradictory. You can't really reconcile those two definitions of grace. So while I was taught that grace was something that was um, necessary, the meaning of grace was not what the Bible teaches grace to be. Um, so there were, other, there were basically other things that were needed besides purely the grace of God, and that's where things um, become problematic. So at the age of seven, I was to receive two more sacraments, baptism being the first sacrament, kind of the gateway into the church, into the, into the religious system. Um, and then at age seven, I was to receive two sacraments for the first time. These were called the sacrament of reconciliation or confession, as it's uh, known also, and the sacrament of holy communion. Now in confession, one enters into a small booth, uh, kneels down, and there is a wooden panel. I mean, this may have changed, but this is what I remember as a child. A wooden panel would open, be opened by a priest who was on the other side of it, and there was a screen, and you would begin a process of confessing your sins to the priest. There was a whole, um, a whole introductory uh, few sentences that you would say. You would then recite your sins, and um, it, it was through that, that sacrament that the priest, um, who was apparently acting um, on behalf of God, would declare forgiveness from God. So there was this mediator between the individual and God, and that was a, a human priest. And then interestingly, the priest would impose penance. So you ask yourself, well, if I was just forgiven of my sins, why did I need to do penance? And, and the reason for that is, um, it's a little complicated, but in the, in the religious system, uh, confession removed what was called eternal punishment. Uh, so if you went to confession, you'd have your sins confessed, and eternal punishment would be removed. So for that moment, at least, um, you were not in danger of going to hell. However, there was still something called temporal punishment that your sins resulted in. Temporal punishment was punishment that you needed to take on in your life, whether through penance, whether through donations, um, whether through um, self-sacrifice. And if that punishment was not fulfilled by your actions in this life, when you died, you would then go on to a place called purgatory, where you would continue to suffer for your sins. It wasn't hell because the punishment of hell would be taken care of through the sacrament of penance, but the sacrament of reconciliation but there was still punishment that had to be worked off, temporal punishment. In other words, punishment that had an end to it, but it was punishment that you had to endure to sort of uh, uh, finish off paying for your sins. So it's kind of a very, uh, very complicated um, uh, system. 
Uh, and so you could see how it starts to get repetitive, because if I then go out of the confessional and I commit a sin, uh, I have to go back to confession to get that, because that maybe it's a sin that's going to cause eternal punishment, so I need to have the priest forgive me for that. Um, and so you start to get into what could be really a treadmill effect here. You just start getting through a same, the same kind of cycling that could happen uh, continually. And then again, everything is dependent on this system. And one of the common penances was you would be given prayers to recite. And I always found it odd. Well, what is praying? Is this, why is praying a penance? Shouldn't pe prayer be something that's a, a positive thing? But you would be given um, a few Our Fathers, a few Hail Marys. That was your penance for that particular confession. You have to go and you have to recite those to uh, reduce the temporal punishment that uh, was afforded to you because of your sin. Um, now, the other, uh, the other sacrament, the other um, uh, sacrament that I received as a child was Holy Communion. And this is, this is the central uh, focal point of the Roman Catholic, uh, of Roman Catholic worship. Um, now, just to bring a few points about the, the, uh, the Roman Catholic idea of, of communion. And, and I do this, I spend time on this because, again, this was such a such a, an ingrained, uh, um, these were ingrained ideas for me as a child. Uh, this is what I was, this is what I was taught. I didn't question it. And this was my life as a, as a child. Now, in, in the Roman Catholic religion, the, the mass, and maybe some of you may have been to a, a mass in the Roman Catholic Church, whether you're former Catholics or maybe you've gone for a, a funeral or, or some other um, event there. Um, the Roman Catholic Mass is actually considered to be a sacrifice. It's a true sacrifice, according to the religion. And it's a sacrifice that's considered propitiatory. And that, that word, as you, many of you know, means a sacrifice that removes the wrath of God. Um, and so it's therefore said to actually be a representation of Calvary, because the Lord Jesus' death on the cross was a propitiatory sacrifice. However, the Mass is something that needs to be repeated. It needs to be represented um, over and over again in order to get the benefit of the Lord Jesus' death on the cross. And what is believed to be sacrifice? Well, what's believed to be sacrifice on the altar is the actual physical body and blood of Jesus Christ. And you say, well, how could that be? Well, in Roman Catholicism, the priest is given the power, supposedly, to change the simple elements of bread and wine into the true body and blood of Jesus Christ through his reciting words of consecration. And so for years, when the priest held that wafer up and I received it, he would say, the body of Christ, and I would recite, amen, thereby affirming that. And if you've ever gone into a Catholic church, you, you may notice that people uh, genuflect when they get to the pew. In other words, they do sort of a half kneel. And during the words of consecration, you might notice Catholics kneeling. And that's because what they're doing there is they are giving adoration to the elements that have now been turned into to the body of blood of Christ. So in effect, they are worshiping these objects as truly being the body and blood of the Lord Jesus. And so again, you have this repetitive nature of the mass, and that's something that Catholics who are 
who are following their religion, they will devoutly go to the Mass on Sundays, um, every Sunday. And many of them will go every day. The Mass is something that's offered every day. Now, at about the age of 11 or 12, I, I got my hands on a New Testament. I don't know where I got this, but I remember it's called uh, Good News for Modern Man. It's sort of a, I guess you'd call it a paraphrase. And I, um, I don't have it anymore, but I, I looked it up recently. It's still available on Amazon. I don't know if there have been recent printings of it, but um, I started to read that. And there were periods of time where I would just kind of read that before going to sleep. And there's kind of a, an interesting um, aspect that, that I, for some reason I don't forget, um, even to this day, is that I, I can't, at the time I was reading this Good News for Modern Man, I came across a pamphlet. I don't know where I, I got that, but it was um, a Roman Catholic pamphlet that basically said that um, even though the Bible says that Jesus had brothers and sisters, they were actually his cousins, not brothers and sisters. And the reason they say that is because in Roman Catholicism, it's believed that Mary remained a virgin after the birth of the Lord Jesus. So the Lord Jesus had no additional um, brothers or sisters, no siblings. And I, for some reason, I, I kind of thought that was interesting because it seemed to me that was a direct contradiction between what the Roman Catholic religion was teaching and what this copy of the New Testament was, was telling me. Because I went and I actually confirmed, after seeing that in the pamphlet, I confirmed, I went to the New Testament, I saw that it clearly said that Jesus had brothers and sisters and actually named some of his brothers. Um, and then I started to notice other discrepancies between the New Testament that I had and the Roman Catholic catechism that I had, a copy of this little um, catechism that had some of the teachings of the the Roman Catholic religion. And I remember as a teenager having a conversation with my father about these things, and he reminded me that as Catholics, we weren't just bound to the scriptures, but we were bound to sacred tradition, and we were bound ultimately to the teaching magisterium of the Roman Catholic Church, as I mentioned. Now, in college, um, I majored in biology, but I, I still had an interest in, in religion. And I actually took two courses in the uh, religious studies department. One of them was a New Testament course. Um, but as I look back, you know, this was a liberal arts college. It wasn't obviously a you know, seminary level kind of course. It was, a, it was a, just a liberal arts college. And the course was very, um, um, I would say that it was basically a course that, that looked at the Lord Jesus as more of a historical figure. And so it was a very, um, you know, liberal theology, we would say. There was really no, uh, no, no evangelical um, um, interest in the course. So I really, I really didn't get much out of it. It was just something that, uh, even, even as someone who was, a, you know, now kind of falling away from Catholicism, I realized that things were not right because the, they were denying the deity of the Lord Jesus and things like that. Um, but I still had that, that interest in, in religion. Um, I then went on to medical school and residency. And um, I mean, these were years where education took precedence over everything. Um, you know, with the intense amount of studying and the sleep deprivation, I, I had no time for uh, religion or anything um, remotely related to 
spirituality. Um, but what's interesting is I never stopped believing in God. I, I, I can't say that I ever would have called myself an atheist, um, even after I had sort of wandered away from religion. Interestingly, if anything, um, my study of science actually increased the strength of my belief in an intelligent being, in a supreme God, because when I studied the cell and I studied things like molecular biology, DNA, I, I couldn't help but think this had to be designed. This is not something that could have randomly come about. It's just that the complexity was just beyond um, our comprehension. And so, um, you know, I had no, no doubt that there had to be a divine intelligence behind, um, behind everything, behind creation. But without a conviction of sin and a need for a savior, of course, I had no personal knowledge of this God. Um, so I probably would have considered myself maybe a, a, just a theist. Um, and so time went on, and I, um, I finished my training. I then found myself in a, in a medical practice. And um, you know, soon I was making a, a good living. And um, by that time, I really had rejected the religion that I was brought up in. I, I would probably say that at that point, I was you know, purely a, a secularist. Uh, somebody really who, um, I shouldn't go that far because again, I said I, I always believed in God, so I was a, maybe a theist, but um, you know, had no conviction of, of anything in terms of uh, religion. I still attended family baptisms. Uh, I would go to um, things that I was invited to in the, in the Catholic Church. I was even asked to be um, the godfather of several children. Um, one of them is my my nephew, another is a cousin's uh, child. So I would still be involved peripherally like that. And one thing about the religion that I was brought up in, is, as is the case with, um, I think, a lot of religion, is that there's sort of an intertwining of the religion and the social network of the family. So the two are very intermingled. So, you know, a, a falling away from the religion is sometimes a very big thing because it's almost... It's, it's insulting because, in a way, you're sort of rejecting the family um, in that aspect because the two are so related that if you reject the religion, you're kind of turning your back on the family. So there was that very tight um, um, intermingling there of the social structure of the family, the extended family, and the, uh, the religious aspect of that. And so I, um, you know, I found myself focusing on, um, on worldly pursuits. Um, and, uh, you know, while I was a law-abiding citizen, I was never arrested. Um, I just, I lived life as a, as a non-believing person was. I, uh, I had no light in my life. I, I lived in rebellion against God the God who had created me and had so greatly blessed me. And I really had no concern um, for his holiness. I didn't really consider the wrath of God, which I had learned of as a child. It really was something that I just didn't want to dwell on. And uh, certainly I didn't like to think of the fact that I would one day be accountable to him. And, you know, I think back now and I wonder if I had ever heard the gospel up to that point. And, I can't imagine that I had not, 
because I remember, um, you know, I watched Billy Graham crusades on television. I would hear uh, preachers on the radio um, and individuals would sometimes speak to me about God. I have vague recollections of that. I don't, I forgot the, the content there. And so it's interesting that while I almost certainly would have heard the gospel, I was so hardened to it and uh, just so blind and spiritually dead, as we saw here in, in Ephesians 2, that, that it didn't penetrate my intellect. It didn't, it didn't get in. It didn't get into my heart, into my mind. I just don't remember. So I, I'm sure I heard it, but it was, I was so hardened to it that I don't even have a recollection of um, of the specifics as to whether I actually heard the gospel. <clears throat> now, in 2005, I, I met uh, Rebecca Kafer and her family. And they were Christians, and they actually had assurance of salvation. And I really didn't understand that. Um, you know, I had heard that there were Christians who claimed that they were saved, but I didn't really understand what that meant. I mean, that that concept was foreign to me, uh, given the the background religion that I came out of. Um, you know, no one had ever explained the concept to me, or if they had, again, I just had not remembered it. It didn't even register. And Rebecca gave me a little brown Bible, which I still have here, and she also gave me a little booklet, which I still have, and it's called, Since Nobody's Perfect, How Good is Good Enough? And I'm just going to read what's on the back. It's written by Andy, Andy Stanley, <clears throat> is the author. And on, on the back of the book, it says this, good people go to heaven, don't they? Sure they do. It only makes sense. Actually, it doesn't really make any sense at all. Smart, educated, accomplished men and women everywhere are banking their eternities on a theory that doesn't hold water. Chances are, you've never really thought it through, but you owe it to yourself to do so. Find out now what's wrong with the most popular theory about heaven and what it really takes to get there. And so, very provocative. Um, I found it very provocative, and I, I, I read the book, and um, it did a couple of things for me. It actually brought the reality of my mortality to the forefront of my mind. I started to think about uh, the fact that I was going to die one day, and I started to wonder what was going to happen to me when I died. Where would I be? Um, and I tried to sort of, um, at least initially, just kind of hope that nothing was going to happen, that I would just lose all consciousness and stop existing. Uh, but that, that idea didn't last too long. I started to become convicted more and more that, in fact, my existence would continue after I die. And it's strange that when I think about all the disease and death that I was exposed to in my, in my work, in my training especially, um, you know, I never really focused on my own mortality, on what would happen if I suddenly died, if I had this uh, horrible terminal disease. Um, 
And another thing the book did was it, it actually made me start to consider the, the possibility that getting to heaven might not be related to my own efforts to get there. And that's really what the title uh, hints at, right? Since nobody's perfect, how good is good enough? I mean, how good do you have to be to get to heaven? Um, and this book actually gave me a renewed interest in the Bible. It actually gave me an interest in the Bible, something that, I mean, I say renewed because there were times, as I said, I did have some interest. But this sort of really gave me um, an interest to the point where I needed to find the answer. I needed to understand how I was going to face God when I died. Probably wasn't thinking of it quite um, in those terms at that point. It was more just, how am I going to avoid hell? How am I going to wind up in, in a good place? How am I going? If there is a heaven and a hell, what's the formula? What do I need to do, if anything? What's the secret? How am I going to, um, to pass from this life into something that's not bad when I die? That's really what I was um, kind of focused on um, finding the answer to. And I, I figured that the Bible was the place to go for that. And so I started to read the Bible, um, you know, just kind of randomly, no real direction. Um, I don't even remember exactly what I was reading at, at that point. But through God's providence in all of this, um, I was invited during this time to attend gospel meetings given by Albert Hull and Peter Ramsey um, right here in Midland Park. And I um, attended for several meetings, and there's one in particular, really only one, that, that stands out uh, very vividly to me. Um, and, and that particular night, Mr. Hull spoke first, and his focus was on sin. Uh, at least that's what I remember. It was a very... Uh, very strong message about sin, and he explained sin as being an epidemic that had basically infected the entire world. Every human being was infected with sin that came through the fall of Adam. And he read Romans 12, Romans 5.12, that says, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. And he spoke of how all of the calamities of the world were related to sin. And he spoke of how individually all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And how God would judge each one of us for our sin. And how the wages of each one's sin was death, eternal death. And he emphasized that sin had separated us from God, that there was this great chasm, and that there was a mediator, only one mediator, between God and man. And that was the Lord Jesus Christ. And then Peter Ramsey followed. And what I remember from his uh, preaching was an emphasis on the solution to the sin problem. It was sort of a beautifully orchestrated, um, by God, of course, um, message for me that, that spoke to me. Um, he spoke of the only remedy for sin, that being the, the atoning death of the Lord Jesus. He spoke of the preciousness of Christ's blood and how it was that blood alone that could cleanse us from our sins. And how on the cross, the Lord Jesus actually paid the debt, actually paid the debt of sinners like me. And that was really an amazing thing that 
that someone could actually pay the debt for my sin. And really the beauty of this was that the entire payment that God demanded was already accomplished, was already, um, that, that that transaction had already occurred. And it was really during that meeting that the Spirit of God was stirring my soul. Um, you know, I, I look back and I, I just am amazed at the grace of God there, how um, someone like me who, you know, is self-sufficient, um, you know, I guess somewhat successful by worldly standards, um, wouldn't have really felt a need for God. And, and uh, yes, I was prideful. I had pride in my heart. It didn't show externally, I think, but deep down I, I did have um, a lot of pride. And so from a from a human point of view, I probably would have been, you know, someone not considered um, a good candidate for being reached with the gospel. Um, so it just goes to show that we really never know who is someone who has been uh, you know, prepared to receive the, the seed of the word through the gospel. Um, and, and it just... Um, you know, it, it's, it just kind of was, was amazing to me as I look back at how the Lord put everything in place um, and had these gospel meetings at a time when I was um, very desperate to know the truth. And on the last day of the meetings, um, I went out for coffee right here at the Starbucks in Wyckoff <clears throat> with Mr. Hull and Mr. Ramsey, and uh, they spoke to me more about Christ's death. And one thing that really hit me um, during those conversations there that night was um, Mr. Hull told me that there was a word in the Greek language, um, and that word was tetelestai. And it's a single word, but it meant in English, and it was translated um, into the English, it is finished. And that was, of course, uh, what the Lord Jesus uttered on the cross. And he told me that in Greek society at that time, it was sort of the equivalent of a stamp that we would have today. If, a, if an invoice was paid, if a debt was, was taken care of, we would stamp a paid uh, stamp on that. And so during these, these days, um, the time of the, the, that the New Testament was written, that word was used in secular society um, on promissory notes when a debt had been paid. It would be stamped, tetelestai, debt paid. And so I was really, um, again, taken back by that, this idea that, that if the debt was paid, well, what could I possibly do? What could I add to it if payment had been made in full? Obviously, there's nothing else that I could, that I could do. And of course, that, that came against the backdrop of my ingrained religious beliefs that I had to do something to be right with God. And Mr. Hull, he took out a post-it there, and he started to just write on the post-it. And he wrote some, some verses. And I actually, I still have them here. I, I just put it in the back cover of the Bible there, and I slapped them on there. And I went home that evening, and I, I read them. I read them several times. And... Um, I think I have time. I'll, I'll read the verses that he, um, that he wrote on that post-it um, that were very important, that spoke to me, that reinforced um, what they had preached 
in their gospel meetings. The first one he wrote was Romans 5, verses 6 and 8. For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. But God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And then he wrote Romans 6, 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. He also wrote 1 John 5, 12, 13 which says, he that hath the Son hath life, and he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God that ye may know that ye have eternal life and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. He also jotted down Isaiah chapter 53, verses five and six, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. And Isaiah 43, 25, I, even I, am he that blotted out the transgressions for mine own sake and will not remember thy sins. And there were two more, 1 Peter 2.24, who his own self bare our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes we were healed. And finally, 1 Peter 3.18, for Christ also, also hath suffered, hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. After that, I started to search the scriptures. I, I kind of think of myself then as a, uh, a Berean. If you remember from uh, Acts 17, 11, there were these individuals from uh, the city of Berea, and it says that they searched the scriptures daily, whether those things were so. And so I read Paul's epistle to the Romans um, over and over again. Um, Mr. Ramsey suggested maybe I do that. He said it's a very uh, detailed layout of the gospel. It presents arguments, and it just it was it was a very it was very helpful for me to read um, that epistle, especially chapters three through five, where the gospel is just laid out so beautifully. And in the second chapter of Ephesians, um, I saw how. We can go from our spiritual state of uh, spiritual death to spiritual life by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I read, um, I, I read verses one through 10 at the start of this meeting. And again, verses uh, eight and nine really spoke to me. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. I saw salvation then as very straightforward, and I was really amazed at how straightforward it was. I, I could never have imagined that, um, that it could be this simple. Um, that really, there was nothing that I had to do, that everything had to be done, and I just had to accept it as the free gift that it was. And so I could see that trying to keep God's law um, 
was really not the way to God. And, and it's interesting because in religion, if you come from religion, it's kind of what you think. You think God's going to look at the balances on the last day and he's going to say, you did this much good, this much bad, you just made it, you're in. Totally not uh, the truth. It's just not, it's not the gospel. The gospel is that you can't do anything, that your end of the scale is completely bankrupt. There's nothing you can offer. And so God had to do it all. And that's what he did through the Lord Jesus Christ and his death on the cross. And so the light now was shining very brightly. I, I, could, I was convicted. And I just wondered, why didn't I ever see this before? What, why? why? And you know, I would understand later that, of course, God does the work. He has to remove the veil. Um, and he does it in his own time. And, and that's what happened. And as I became more and more convicted of my own uh, sinfulness, I, I could see the freeness of God's grace and salvation through Christ. And it was just a beautiful thing to behold. And um, I became certain at that point of the fact that if I died, I would definitely be in hell. There was no question about it, um, simply because that's what I deserved. And I realized that I was a lost sinner. Um, I saw how hopeless I was to save myself. And so on uh, November 15th, 225, I, uh, 2005, I, for the first time, agreed with God. Um, I agreed that I was lost, and I embraced Jesus Christ's death in my place, understanding that my sins had been laid on him and punished by God in him so that I could walk away declared righteous. And um, that evening, I, I passed from death unto life. And I could see there the power of the gospel. I understood when I read in Romans 1 that the power, the power of the gospel, that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And so the next day, I, I woke up, and I, I kind of started to wonder um, about the simplicity of this. It just seemed too simple. And I just started to think to myself, this can't be it. This, this can't be um, how you're saved. There has to be more. There has to be more. Again, just something ingrained in me. And so I prayed to God. I cried out to God for some kind of assurance from his word. Uh, didn't know what else to do. Um, and so several weeks went by. I read the Bible each morning. And one day, a few weeks later, I, I came across a passage that I, um, that I found gave me Assurance, and it was uh, Romans 6, 20, 22, and it says this, For when ye were the servants of sin, ye were free from righteousness. What fruit had ye then in those things, whereof ye now are ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now being made free from sin and become servants to God, ye have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. And when I read that, I, I rested. I, I felt that, that that was speaking to me, um, that my salvation was secure, that it was real, and that I could rest on the finished work of the Lord Jesus. I'll just end with a, a few lines from a, a 20th century hymn. Uh, we, don't, we don't sing many more modern hymns. This was written, I think, in the 1940s by a man named John Peterson, it's called, It Took a Miracle. It, and these lines really uh, 
they kind of speak to me because I really see my salvation as a miracle. You know, people say, oh, there are no miracles. And when I hear that, I, I just kind of laugh inside and I say, well, I'm a miracle. I am a living miracle. God performed a miracle in saving me because I just marvel at his, at his long-suffering, at his patience with me, um, at, his, as, at his, his love, his grace, his mercy, even as I was in rebellion against him. Just the patience, the waiting, the long-suffering. And the, the few lines go like this. It says, I, it, it took a miracle to put the stars in place. It took a miracle to hang the world in space. But when he saved my soul, cleansed and made me whole, it took a miracle of love and grace.